0: My friends, welcome back to The Catholic Reason, a radio show produced by St. Michael Catholic Radio, where we explain the whys behind Catholic beliefs concerning issues of faith, morality, and culture. My name is Carlo Brusor, the host for this show. I'm a staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers and a member of the Chancery Evangelization Team at the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma. Every Thursday, I come to you at 4 p.m. on St. Michael Catholic Radio 94.9, thinking with you through various claims made by the Catholic Church and providing the reasons behind those claims, hence the title of the show, The Catholic Reason. Also note that the show is podcasted. You can download and listen to the show anytime you want. You can get the podcast version of the show by searching The Catholic Reason. In whatever podcast search engine that you that you use. In this episode, we're gonna look at objections to apologetics. In our first episode of The Catholic Reason, we looked at the nature, division, and purpose of apologetics, as well as a brief history of the six different periods of apologetics. Uh, So in this episode, we're gonna look at some objections because people have a lot of people have a negative view of apologetics and often dismiss apologetics and outright reject it. Uh, So, we're going to look at four objections in this episode. One objection is the idea that proofs don't always work. Secondly, love is more important, so why bother with the apologetics? Thirdly, it's possible to be saved outside the Catholic Church, so why try and convince someone? The assumption there being the Church is teaching that it's possible when certain conditions are met that someone is saved outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church. And then fourthly, the Bible says it's folly to engage in reasoned arguments. That's foolishness. It's the cross that matters most. And so we should reject apologetics and everything involved with it. Now, there's a general answer To this sort of negative view to apologetics and more specified answers that deal with each of the apologetics, I think it's important to first uh, give a general response to the overall rejection of apologetics. Note that apologetics is the practice of giving a defense for your belief, right? (laughs) Well, in the very objection to apologetics, the objector gives reasons for his rejection of apologetics. The objector is given reasons why we shouldn't do apologetics. I listed the four. There's many more, but we're going to consider four in this episode. Anyone who is going to give a reason why we should not do apologetics, they're in fact doing apologetics. They're giving an apology. A defense for why we shouldn't do apologetics. But to give an apology or a defense as to why we shouldn't do apologetics, guess what? That's doing apologetics. So all the objections that we're going to consider in this episode engage in apologetics. <laughs> and so it's a bit self refuting, right? To reject apologetics and give reasons for that rejection is to do the very thing that you're rejecting. So, it's a self-refuting practice or enterprise there. So, that's just a general answer to the rejection of apologetics and giving reasons why we should reject apologetics. Now, let's move to the objections specifically. The first of which is this idea that proofs don't always work. So, the idea here is apologetical arguments don't always work and lead someone to faith. So why bother with these apologetical arguments if they don't always work? First of all, we could ask the question, is it true that they don't always work? And the answer is yes, right? Apologetical arguments are not always so convincing that they compel the mind to assent to the proposition being proposed. So sometimes they do not work on people to whom we're presenting them. I, as a Catholic Answers apologists experience this all the time And doing Catholic Answers live, on the radio, and in ministry. Very often, I present an argument, my colleagues do as well, and the person to whom we're presenting the argument just doesn't buy the argument and doesn't see the truth of the conclusion. So, it is true that they don't always work, but is this reason to give up on the whole apologetical enterprise? Absolutely. I answer, no, it's not. So, Here's a few ways in which we can respond to this sort of objection. I have six here that I'll share with you. One is that other things sometimes don't work either, right? Like prayer and love. So you might ask the question, well, what else are we going to do if we're not going to do apologetics, apologetics and issue or offer apologetical arguments? What else are we going to do? Someone might say, well, we need to pray for them and we just need to love them. Well, guess what? Praying for them doesn't work sometimes either, and just loving on them doesn't work sometimes either. Many times, just loving the person does not lead that person to be converted to the truth of the Catholic faith or the Christian faith in general. So, we could set up our reasoning in this way. Consider this. If we give up on apologetics because sometimes it doesn't work, well then, we'd have to give up on prayer and love. Why? Because sometimes they don't work. But surely we shouldn't give up on prayer and love, just because sometimes they don't lead to conversion. And so therefore, conclusion, we shouldn't give up on apologetics either, for this reason. Now here's another response to the objection. Sometimes the apologetical arguments do, in fact, work. And if they, in fact, work sometimes in leading people to conversion, well then we ought to employ them. That's a good thing. So, consider the fact—I mean, I know for my, for my own sake, they work for my mind, the apologetical arguments do. I know that the, all of my colleagues, except for maybe one other apologist that Catholic Answers, are all converts, and they are converts because of the persuasive force of the apologetical arguments that were presented to them when they were not Catholic. So, the apologetical arguments worked for them. Uh, I know of countless other theologians and philosophers and apologists who are converts, and the apologetical arguments work for them. I mean, shoot, here in the Diocese of Tulsa, there are so many converts. We have many of them at our parish, at Holy Family Cathedral in Tulsa. And the majority of these converts that I come into contact with here and around the Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma— Have been persuaded by the apologetical arguments that we, for example, present at Catholic Answers. Many of these converts have come into the faith in large part because of the work that we do at Catholic Answers and the arguments that we give. So, apologetical arguments do in fact work. And if they in fact work, which they do, well, then we should use them. If someone were to say, oh, well, we shouldn't use apologetics, and apologetical arguments, knowing that they in fact lead people to the faith, well then, why wouldn't you want somebody coming to the faith? What does that say about the person who's rejecting apologetics and their view of Catholicism? To me, that seems to suggest that they don't see Catholicism as something worth assenting to, and joining, and becoming a part of, and embracing. But if you don't see Catholicism as worth embracing, then... What does that say about your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that the Catholic Church has been given to us as a gift by our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So, it all goes back to our blessed Lord. So, first of all, other things sometimes don't work, prayer and love, but we're not going to give up on that just because they don't work, and sometimes the apologetical arguments do work. Third uh, response to this objection, we shouldn't expect apologetical arguments to work every time. Most arguments only lead the mind to probable knowledge, and that leaves room for willed assent. And if there is room for willed assent, where you have to will the mind to assent to a proposition to be true, well, then therein lies the possibility to not assent. So we shouldn't be surprised that the apologetical arguments don't work sometimes. We should expect that. And given that rightful expectation— we're less inclined to give up on apologetics when it doesn't work in some particular cases. Here's a fourth response. What's not seen intellectually now may be seen later. So it might not work now, but the apologetical arguments may work for the individual later. You know, coming to knowledge is a journey. Coming to knowledge of the truth is a journey. And sometimes we're disposed to see that truth At a particular time and sometimes we're not. And just because someone's not disposed at one particular time doesn't mean they won't be disposed to see the truth at some other. And so with this in mind, it's still good to offer the arguments for the Christian faith and Catholicism in particular with the hope that at some other part of the journey of knowledge the person might come to see it. Fifth response, apologetical arguments are still good, even though they might not convince someone. As I mentioned in the previous episode of The Catholic Reason last week, apologetical arguments are still good because it strengthens and fortifies the believers, it satisfies our rational nature, it's an act of love and willing the good of truth for the other, and as we mentioned, it's an act of justice to give them what is their due. So, even though the apologetical arguments doesn't have the effect of converting the other person, these arguments are still good and still ought to be employed for the reasons that I just gave. Now, here's one last response that I have to this objection that proofs don't always work. We cannot ignore those for whom arguments will work. Okay, so maybe there are those for whom it won't work, but there are some others for those whom it will work. If we give up on apologetics simply because some will not find the arguments convincing, then we'd be losing opportunities to convince those who are disposed to the truth and would be convinced. And since we don't want to ignore these kinds of people, we shouldn't give up on apologetics simply because some will not find the arguments convincing. We would be leaving some people out, right, who are are disposed to see the truth of the arguments. Looking at the first objection to apologetics, the idea that proofs don't always work, and we gave six responses to that objection. Sometimes other things don't work, prayer and love, yet we don't reject those. Secondly, sometimes apologetical arguments do work. Thirdly, we shouldn't expect apologetical arguments to work every time. We should expect some people not to buy the argument. Uh, Fourthly, what's not seen intellectually now may be seen later, and so for that reason, we shouldn't give up on apologetics. Fifthly, apologetical arguments are still good, even though they might not bring about the effect of convincing someone. And I mentioned it strengthens and fortifies believers, satisfies our rational nature, it's an act of love and willing the good of truth for another, and it's an act of justice— to give them what is their due. And finally, we can't ignore those for whom arguments will work. Out of love for them, we need to be employing apologetical arguments. Now, a second objection to apologetics that we can consider is the objection that love is more important. It's love that matters, not apologetical arguments. We shouldn't be worried about apologetical arguments. We, could just, we should just be focused on loving people. And through that love of people, well, then that's all that matters, and they'll eventually convert, given our testimony, given our witness to the love of Christ. Well, one response to this sort of, this sort of objection is that just because love is important, that doesn't mean arguments are not important. Okay? To affirm the importance of love does not entail that apologetical arguments are not important. Here's an example that we could utilize to shed some light on this idea. Let's suppose we say faith is important, which it is. So, let's say someone says faith is important, therefore we don't need hope. Well, of course, that's absurd, right? Because St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we need faith, hope, and charity. So, the point here is that to affirm the importance of one thing doesn't necessarily entail the negation of another. So, to affirm the importance of faith doesn't entail the negation of the importance of hope. So, too, to affirm the importance of love doesn't entail the negation of the importance and the good of apologetical arguments. So, this sort of objection to apologetics is fallacious. Affirming, the, affirming love and concluding with the negation of apologetics, that's just fallacious reasoning. especially in light of the fact that we've already shown and talked about how apologetics contributes to the good of others and to ourselves. Second response to the love-is-more-important objection. Reason is a friend of love, not an enemy. So, think about that. To say that, well, we don't need apologetical arguments, which involves reason and philosophy and all of that stuff, intellectual stuff. We only need love. The assumption there is that reason and the use of the intellect and uh, clear thinking, intellectual reasoning, is mutually exclusive from love or incompatible with love. Well, since when does reason and the intellect become incompatible with love? That doesn't make sense. In order to even love something, you got to know something, right? And so think of it like this. Apologetics involves reason. That's clear. Reason is a friend of love. It's not an enemy of love. It actually leads to love. Since, again, as I said, we can't love that which we do not know. Knowledge is a prerequisite for for love. And if knowledge is a prerequisite for love, well, then knowledge is a friend of love, not an enemy of love. They're not incompatible. And so we can conclude that apologetics is, therefore, a friend of love. So, again, apologetics involves reason, reason is a friend of love, therefore apologetics is a friend of love. Clear, simple reasoning process there. Now, uh, a third response to the love-is-more-important objection is that love calls for apologetics. And we touched on this in our last episode last week on the Catholic reason— where we were given an, apo- giving an apology for apologetics and reasons why we should engage in apologetics. And one of them was that to will the good of the others. What is the greatest good but our Catholic faith and the revelation of Jesus Christ? And so love would motivate us to will that good for another, that another would come to experience that good. Well, apologetics comes into play in defending that good and sharing that good. And so, of course, apologetics is going to be utilized out of love for another. Now, here's another way we could look at it. Whenever we love something, we defend it when there's a threat that it might be attacked or taken away. And that's pretty common human experience. Well, we love Jesus and the truth that He's revealed to us, both of which, I'm sure everyone listening right now will agree with me, are being attacked and threatened to be taken away from believers. And so, therefore, we can conclude we should defend Jesus and the truth that He has revealed to us. So, the bottom line here is that love demands that we engage in apologetics. Love calls for it. So, just because love is important doesn't mean apologetics is not important. Reason is a friend of love, not an enemy. And since apologetics involves reason, apologetics is a friend of love. And finally, love calls for apologetics. Now, you might be noticing there, love is coming up quite a bit, and I and I think this is important because love needs to be the lens through which we look at apologetics and engage in apologetics. And as long as we keep that lens of charity and looking through it, looking at it through the lens of love that will go a long way <clears throat> excuse me and helping us to meet that criterion that saint peter articulates in 1 peter 3:15 that whenever we give a reason for the hope that is within us we do it with gentleness and reverence by looking at apologetics through the lens of love it will help us engage in apologetics with that gentleness and with that reverence and avoid being the egotistical narcissistic triumphalistic jerk right <laughs> all right so Now that we've taken care of the love-is-more-important objection, let's move on to another objection that some will pose to the practice of apologetics, and that is the possibility to be saved outside the church objection. So, the Catholic Church teaches that it's possible for someone who's not visibly a Catholic to be saved. So, one might think, well, why bother with apologetics and try to convert the person— and lead them to the truth when it's possible for them to be saved without this visible unity in the Catholic Church. It's sort of a blissful ignorance, right? Why not leave them in the ignorance that they're in, which, assumingly, they're not responsible for that ignorance and thus could possibly be saved given their invincible ignorance, not being responsible for that ignorance. Why not just leave them there? Why engage in the apologetics and try to convert them Well, there's a couple of answers that we can, more than a couple, five, got five listed here, answers that we can give in response to this sort of objection. The first of which is that those without the fullness of truth and life, they lack great goods. The fullness, the, the, the implied principle there, or to state it differently, is that the fullness of truth and life are great goods. And we should will those great goods for all. This was taken up. This issue was taken up by the then called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in its 2007 note on evangelization. And I'm going to read several excerpts to you and comment on them because I think it's important. Uh, the, the The doctrinal note states the following: Although non Christians can be saved through the grace which God bestows in ways known to Him. The church cannot fail to recognize that such persons are lacking a tremendous benefit in this world. To know the true face of God and the friendship of Jesus Christ, God with us, and the revelation of the fundamental truths about God, about the human person, and the world. These are great goods for every human person. It goes on to state, "...while living in darkness without the truths about ultimate questions is an evil and is often at the root of suffering and slavery, which can at times be grievous." This is why St. Paul doesn't hesitate to describe conversion to the Christian faith as liberation from the power of darkness there in Colossians through 14 Therefore, it concludes fully belonging to Christ, who is the truth, and entering the Church doesn't lessen human freedom but rather exalts it and directs it towards its fulfillment and a love that is freely given and which overflows with care for the good of all people. And so notice how the CDF here, this doctrinal note, is, or, or is explaining and affirming that the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ and the truths about God and the human person and the world, these are great goods, and they enable us to get out of the darkness, right? without the the darkness that people are in without these truths. And that's a great evil. So in sharing this truth, and of course, get, uh, defending it and giving reasons for these truths can help people get out of that darkness. It's a solution to the problem of evil, of ignorance. And ignorant of these divinely revealed truths, truths that can perfect the individual, truths that can help the individual find meaning in life and purpose. We talked about this last week in our first episode of The Catholic Reason. And so for this reason, uh we should share these truths even though it's possible for someone to be saved without knowing them explicitly because without them they're living in darkness, without them they're experiencing and even for we would say, as Catholics, for Christians outside the Catholic Church living in some degree of darkness by not having these truths. So before we left off on the break, we were starting to answer and respond to the objection that we shouldn't bother with apologetics because the Catholic Church teaches it's possible for someone to be saved outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church— Uh, on condition that they're not responsible for their ignorance or have not made a full deliberate act of the will to reject the Church, etc. And we began to respond to that objection by looking at the then-called Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in its 2007 doctrinal note on evangelization. And the the doctrinal note makes clear— and affirms that those who do not have the fullness of truth of the Catholic faith are lacking a tremendous benefit in this world. So unbelievers, they're in a greater darkness and lacking the truths of Jesus Christ and God and the human person and the world and the relation between all three. Uh, For those Christians who have a a lot of light, right, because they're Christian, they believe in Jesus Christ, they accept the Word of God— But lacking some some truth, and thereby lacking the fullness of truth in life that we believe to subsist in the Catholic Church, they would be in some darkness and lacking those truths, and thus lacking a great benefit, a great good. Now, I'd like to continue with this doctrinal note and a few more things to point out. It goes on in the document to state that God's revelation is an inestimable inestimable benefit— To live with the universal embrace of the friends of God, that's a benefit—to be embraced by the communion of saints, which flows from the communion and the life-giving flesh of His Son. Secondly, to receive from Him the certainty of the forgiveness of sins, that's an inestimable benefit. And the doctrinal note here is referring to the Sacrament of Reconciliation, uh, as well as the mercy that Christ promises us to give us ordinarily through that sacrament and to live in in the love that is born of faith. So these are benefits that people are lacking in when they don't have the truth of Jesus Christ and His Church. And the Church wants everyone to share in these goods, the congregation goes on to state, so that they may possess the fullness of truth and the fullness of the means of salvation in order to enter into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, without the fullness of truth in life, People lack these great goods, and so for this reason, we should share these great goods out of love for them, even though it's possible for them to be saved without explicit knowledge of that truth on condition that they're not responsible for their ignorance. Now, there's another document that was issued by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 2000. It was a declaration entitled Dominus Iesus. Uh, signed then by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger and and approved by Pope St. John Paul II. And it has something relevant to say there. It states this, quote, With the coming of the Savior Jesus Christ, God has willed that the Church founded by Him be the instrument for the salvation of all humanity. This truth of faith does not lessen the sincere respect which the Church has for the religions of the world, but at the same time, it rules out in a radical way That mentality of indifferentism, characterized by a religious relativism, which leads to the belief that one religion is as good as another. So, the Catholic Church rejects that. If it is true that the followers of other religions can receive divine grace, it is also certain that, objectively speaking, they are in a gravely deficient situation in comparison with those who in the Church have the fullness of the means of salvation. So, in evangelization, we might ask the question, does does someone want to be in a deficient situation or a situation where they have the fullness of life and truth that Christ desires and wills for us all to have? And from the Catholic perspective, we would say, we do not want to be in a deficient situation. We do not want others to be in a deficient situation. We want ourselves and others to experience that fullness of truth and life that we believe to be in the Catholic Church. And so that should be a reason to evangelize and to engage in apologetics, even though someone who is outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church, whether a non Catholic Christian or just a non Christian, uh, even though it's possible for them to be saved in those states on condition that they're not responsible for their ignorance. So, in sum, we can say the fullness of truth and life that subsists in the Catholic Church are tremendous goods. And in fact, they're the greatest goods, because they're ultimately expressions of the greatest good, God made flesh himself, Jesus Christ. Love is to will the good of another, and so therefore, we, if we love others, then we should will that they come to have the fullness of truth and life that's in the Catholic Church, even though it's possible for them to be saved without knowing that fullness of truth and life. Now, here's a second way we can respond to this sort of objection Knowing the truth makes it easier to attain salvation. So this gets back to what Dominus Iesus was stating in 2000, that those who do not have that fullness of truth in life are in a gravely deficient situation. And so it makes the acquisition of eternal life at the end of our lives more difficult because we're not utilizing all of the tools that our Lord has willed to give us. So, knowing the truth and having all of those tools does indeed make it easier to attain our final salvation, and that is entrance into heaven and receiving the inheritance prepared for us as sons and daughters of God. My colleague and good friend Jimmy Akin, uh, in his book, uh, A Daily Defense, and on day 181, so he writes 365 days plus one, a little short essay on apologetics, and he deals with this sort of objection, and he has a a great way of putting it concerning how our knowledge of the truth makes it easier to attain salvation. So here's what he writes. It doesn't have to be impossible for a person to be saved for there to be a salvation-based motive for evangelization. If becoming a Christian makes it easier or more likely for him to be saved, that's a reason to share the gospel with him. There are spiritual dangers in the world, and then he quotes paragraph 844 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, "...very often deceived by the evil one, men have become vain in their reasonings, and have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and served the creature rather than the creator, or else living and dying in this world without God, they are exposed to ultimate despair. If a person has a clearer understanding of the truth and greater access to the means of grace that the Christian faith offers, then he will be better prepared to overcome those dangers and be saved." Now, Jimmy here is writing specifically with regard to—and quoting the Catechism—with regard to non-believers, and Dominus Jesus, and even the doctrinal note on evangelization seem to have non-believers in mind. And, of course, the reasons that they give apply specifically to non-believers. But I think we can utilize these lines of reasoning with regard to even non-Catholic Christians. So, talking to you, my Catholic brothers and sisters, to motivate you to engage in apologetics, to take into consideration our Protestant brothers and sisters, that it, you know, for them to know the fullness of truth and life in the Catholic Church makes it easier and more likely for them to be saved— and so, for that reason, we ought to want to share with them the fullness of truth and life that subsists in the Catholic Church, even though technically it's possible that our Protestant brothers and sisters can be saved, being outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church, on condition that they're not responsible for whatever ignorance, for whatever, not responsible for their lack of visible unity with the Catholic Church. And then, as Jimmy Aiken points out here, Having that fullness of truth and life in the Catholic Church can help all of us, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, to be better prepared to overcome the dangers that uh, can prohibit us from being saved and impede us from being saved. And so we're able, we're able to better overcome obstacles to salvation by having access to the fullness of truth and life that our Lord has invested within the Catholic Church. So, bottom line here, knowing the truth makes it easier to attain salvation. Apologetics is a way in virtue of which we can make that truth known, and so therefore apologetics can assist another in uh, attaining salvation. A third response to this objection is that uh, people would miss out on increasing their soul's capacity for experiencing the depth of happiness in heaven. The, the idea here, the assumption here, this is following from a theological principle that's embedded within our Catholic theological tradition, that our soul, we in heaven will experience beatitude and experience the happiness of seeing God's essence in the beatific vision— in proportion to the soul's capacity for charity. So the greater capacity for love or charity that we have when we die, the deeper our experience of happiness in heaven will be. Well, if we forego apologetics and we give up on apologetics simply because it's possible for someone to enter into heaven without visible unity in the Catholic Church on condition they're not responsible for that lack of visible unity— We would be doing them a great disservice because they would be missing out on attaining the knowledge that could help them to increase in their capacity for charity, missing out on the graces given through the sacraments that would enable them to increase their soul's capacity for charity and thereby increase their happiness and their experience of happiness in the beatific vision, and we don't want to do these folks a disservice and sell them short and what they can ultimately achieve in the happiness of heaven, giving answers to the objection to apologetics that we shouldn't bother with apologetics because it's possible for someone to be saved outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church on condition that they're not responsible for that lack of visible unity. And we were giving an answer that to not engage in apologetics— for this reason, and to leave people alone, we would be doing them a great disservice because they would be missing out on the ability to increase their soul's capacity for experiencing greater depths of happiness in heaven. And I wanted to wrap that answer up with a quote from the late apologist Frank Sheed in his book Theology and Sanity, on page 344, where he writes the following, "...a man who does not accept the Catholic Church may be saved, that is, he may enter heaven." But not having all the truths or all the means of grace, he will not have grown to the sole capacity that the totality of Christ's gifts would have meant to him. A given non-Catholic may indeed have made better use of his smaller share of gifts than a given Catholic has made of the totality. Yet his capacity, though it may be greater than this or that Catholic actually has, is not as great. As he himself, as a Catholic, would have had. And the difference matters for beyond our power to conceive. So, in leaving somebody in their blissful ignorance, as we could say it like that, they would be missing out on increasing their soul's capacity for experiencing deeper depths, greater depths of happiness in heaven. Now, there are two more ways in which you can respond to this objection that we're dealing with here. And one of them is, truth is a good, and we should will the good for them out of love. We already touched on this in passing, Uh, so we could ask the question, well, isn't the truth a good for the person? Wouldn't love move us to share that truth and try to convince them of what's real? And of course, the answer is yes. And even though it's possible for them to be saved, the truth is still a good for them. And then finally, consider this, the church only teaches a possibility— for someone who's outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church to be saved. We don't know to whom it applies. So, even though it's possible for Joe Schmo to be saved if he's not a Catholic, we don't know if he actually fits that description, right? If he fits that description in fact. And this is why we should still try and persuade people to the truth, because we don't know if they fit the description of someone who is not responsible for their lack of visible unity with the Catholic Church. And so for this reason, we should still evangelize by way of offering apologetical arguments for the Catholic faith, even though it's possible for somebody to be saved outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church. Okay, so now we come to our last and final objection to apologetics, and that is the Bible says philosophy is bad, right? Or the Bible says Reasoned argumentation is foolish and folly, and it's the cross only that matters. And this sort of objection uh, comes from what St. Paul says in First Corinthians chapter one verses 18 through 25. Here's what Paul writes, "For the word, of, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God, for it's written, for it's written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart." where is the wise man? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, Christ crucified is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men." Again, that's 1 Corinthians one, eighteen 18 18-25. So, the question becomes, well, how can we promote apologetics which uses, uses reasoned debate when Paul clearly says that the debaters of this age and of this world are foolish. We Shouldn't we stick to preaching Christ crucified and leave all that Greek wisdom and apologetical stuff behind? It would seem that Paul is saying this— It would seem that Paul is saying for us as Christians, we leave behind all of that Greek stuff and reason debate and wisdom and um, uh, clear thinking and reasoning and stuff, and we should just be preaching Christ crucified. So, how can we respond to this sort of objection? Well, I go into great detail in my article on this issue entitled The Wisdom of God and of the World at Catholic.com, so you might want to check that out. But I'll just summarize what I say there here and give the two responses to the objection. So, first of all, if we were to accept the logic of this objection and reject apologetics because of what Paul is saying here, well, then we would have to say that God would be contradicting his own nature. So, consider that if we take God's words, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, to mean that he's disproving of reasoned debate and philosophical reasoning and what we do in apologetics, well then he would be acting foolishly, for he would be contradicting his own nature. Consider this. It belongs to our nature as rational animals to have an intellect. And that intellect is naturally directed to contemplating reality. So to engage in philosophy and reasoned debate and do what we do in apologetics— which is basically the quest to know reality and the ultimate causes of reality and things in reality through natural reason, that's a good thing for us as human beings. And whenever not and whatever knowledge of reality that we can use to direct our lives toward God, which is the virtue of prudence, and that's also good for us, right? So for God to command us to not engage in philosophical reasoning, reason debate, and what we do in apologetics would be to command us to act contrary to the good of our human nature. Now, for God to command us to act contrary to the good of our human nature, that would be to command us to direct our lives away from Him as our ultimate end or goal. In other words, God would be commanding us to not love Him. Why? Well, to love God, we need to live in accord with the nature that He created us with. That's an expression of love of God. So, to not live in accord with that nature that God has given us is to not love God. If God were to command us to not live in accord with that nature that He has created us with, He would be commanding us not to love Him, right? So hopefully you can follow that. But of course, God cannot command us to not love Him, because that would entail a failure for God to love Himself, which is impossible, given God's perfect nature. And I also have an article at Catholic.com where I defend that principle of how God cannot command us to sin. In other words, God cannot command us to act contrary to the good of our nature because he would be failing to love himself, which is impossible. And think about this: a failure to love for a failure for God to love himself would involve God falling short of being fully actualized in his loving power. And since that can't be, given that God is Pure actuality itself or pure existence itself, he can't fail to love himself. So there's all sorts of philosophical and metaphysical reasons why God cannot fail to love himself. For God to command us to not love him would be a failure in loving himself, but God cannot fail in loving himself. Therefore, God cannot command us to commit sin, which entails a lack of loving him. So it cannot be that God intends to express disapproval of philosophical reason, reason debate, and what we do in apologetics when he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. Nor can this be Paul's intended meaning, for Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit wouldn't contradict what we can know by the natural light of human reason. So that response at least shows why God cannot mean what the objection objection says these words mean. But, of course, this raises the question, well, what does God, and thus Paul, mean with the words, I would destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever? Well, we can look to St. Thomas Aquinas here for some help. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he writes this, God doesn't say absolutely I would destroy the wisdom because all wisdom is from the Lord God, quoting Sirach 1.1. But, he goes on, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, i.e., here's Aquinas' interpretation, which I think makes sense, which the wise of this world have invented for themselves against the true wisdom of God. Because, as it says in James 3.15, this is not wisdom descending from above, but earthly, sensual, devilish. So, God promises to bring an end by the power of the cross, the disordered reason. That's what he's after here. He promises, by the power of the cross, to bring to an end the disordered reason by which human beings strive to live for this world and the goods of this world alone. Again, Aquinas explains, Similarly, God doesn't say, I will reject prudence or cleverness, for God's wisdom teaches true prudence, but the prudence of the prudent, i.e., which is regarded as prudent by those who esteem themselves prudent in worldly affairs so that they cling to the goods of this world, or because the prudence of the flesh is death. So, God is not rejecting prudence, which is coming to know reality and living in accord with it, and allowing reality to inform our decisions. God is rejecting those who esteem themselves prudent in worldly affairs. affairs. That's what God, and thus Paul, is getting at. So, this tendency to live for worldly affairs alone is what drives our attempt Our attempts to explain the world. And so just as we tend to live only for the goods of this world, we tend to explain the world only in terms of the things in the world, restricting our explanations to natural causes and not allowing recourse to a transcendent reality or the possible light of divine revelation. And this is what Aquinas means when he says in his commentary, on account of the vanity of his heart, man wandered from the right path of divine knowledge. So God, and thus Paul, is not rejecting reason debate, philosophical reasoning, and what we do in apologetics. What God, and thus Paul, are rejecting is trying to offer explanations of things by natural causes alone and the things of this life alone without any appeal or recourse to transcendent reality, which is God Himself. Well, my friends, our time is up here in this episode. Please be sure to tune in next week to The Catholic Reason as we continue to look at the Catholic reasons behind Catholic claims on issues of faith, morality, and culture. Again, I'm Carlo Brusord, The Catholic Reason, St. Michael Catholic Radio. See you next week. God bless.